0: Hebrews 9 and only looking at two verses this morning, 13 and 14. I was going to move on quicker, but some things jumped out to me from this passage that I felt like I just wanted to stop and look at something here this morning from these two verses. It kind of is a tie-in from last week's message. Last week's sermon was called Jesus Provides Eternal Redemption, and today's is Jesus provides a lifestyle of redemption. So we looked at the idea last week of redemption. That was in verses 1 through 12. And it's this idea that Jesus' sacrifice, his death, has secured or it's provided eternal redemption. But today, like I said, I want to follow up on that with another thought about this idea of redemption. And I specifically am drawing our point to see the lifestyle Of redemption that Jesus can offer us to live after. Redemption is what Jesus' death accomplished. Redemption is one of those words that can have slightly different definitions depending on the context and how it's used. In general, it could refer to a business transaction. The merchant sets a price for the product, and then you go and purchase that product for the agreed-upon price. That exchange could be referred to as you redeemed that product for the agreed upon price. But the stronger meaning of the word in the Bible, and its more widely used meaning, is the idea of rescuing or delivering someone from a bad situation. The most common analogy given is a slave. Redemption in the Bible means to release or to set free, with the implied analogy that you're freeing a slave in that process. So it has Terms like to set free, to liberate, to deliver. So think about that now. And what the Bible does is it paints a picture that all people are enslaved to sin. People are slaves to sin. Their master is sin. People are in need of redemption then. They need to be set free from their master called sin. The problem is, though, that people do not have the power to free themselves from sin's enslavement. They can't gain enough power to set themselves free and overpower their master. They can't earn enough money and buy their own freedom. They're trapped and doomed to a life of slavery to sin. That's the Bible's picture on the one hand. That means then people without Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are slaves to sin, whether they realize it or not. They're bound to do what their fleshly lust push them to chase after. They're slaves to this sinful world system. They're also following after the schemes of Satan in this world, whether they realize it or not. That's the key. They probably don't realize it, but that's what's going on. Not only those things, though, but someone without Christ in their life as their personal Savior is destined to eternal judgment and punishment for those sins. Now, that's not how the story ends, though, thankfully. The Bible goes on to say that God does redeem people. In the Old Testament, God is said many times to have redeemed Israel, God's people. The specific big event that God always talks about in the Old Testament is when they were slaves in Egypt. And God would remind them, I bought you, I purchased you out of slavery in Egypt. You're my people. In the New Testament, it also says Jesus came to redeem people from slavery to sin. Jesus came to redeem people out of bondage and set them free. There was a price though. We could not pay it, so we couldn't get our own freedom. Jesus came and he paid that price. He has purchased people out of enslavement to sin, so they're free to serve the living God. Now, not only that, but they're also spared the eternal judgment and punishment that we deserve because of our sins. Now, that was verses 1 through 12 explaining how Jesus has come and what he's done. It secured this idea of redemption. He can provide redemption eternally for people because he offered himself up like that greater high priest he offered himself up as an animal sacrifice of sorts but he was innocent and perfect he secured that eternal redemption for those who believe in him that means again eternal never ending salvation is offered to those who put their faith and trust in Jesus as their savior his death secured that we're about to honor that at Easter his death and then his resurrection he rose again through that resurrection that we'll talk about at Easter to show that he had the power over death, and that those who believe in him are not only forgiven, but they can be raised again to live forever. Now, the first thing I want to draw your attention to in thinking about redemption is, I want to call it the position of redemption. So that was last week, and that was all that stuff I just said very quickly. Think of all that stuff as the position of redemption. The position of redemption means that that's our status. If you're here and you're a Christian, you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, there's a, a position, you have a status, and it's that you are redeemed. That's your position, that's your status before the Lord through Jesus Christ. In God's eyes, you're a redeemed person. But the thing I want to talk about today is another concept I want to call the lifestyle of redemption. So today, let's talk about this, the lifestyle of redemption. Redemption. Because Jesus died to secure the position of redemption, so that's on the one hand, he died to secure your position that you can be redeemed. He also did something else. He set us free to follow a lifestyle of redemption. That's the main idea for today's message. Jesus did not die only to save you for all eternity. He died so that you and I could also live life on this earth as saved people. Think of that for a second. He died so you could be redeemed, but he also died so that you could live your life on earth like a redeemed person is supposed to. give you an example. Think of a slave for a moment. Picture a slave who's been freed. They're no longer a slave. Their position is that they're a freed person. So that's their position. They're a freed person. But pretend with me that this former slave never left their old master's property. And then what if the freed slave continued every day to do the same routine, the same jobs, the same tasks they did when they were a slave? Their position is that they're free. They've been liberated. But practically speaking, they're still living the lifestyle of a slave. They're not living the lifestyle of a freed person. We would say to that that former slave, like, what are you thinking? You're freed. Go live like a free person. If a slave is freed, we would tell them, stop doing the things that you used to do when you were a slave. You're free now. Go live like the free person that you are. On the one hand, the freed slave has the position of a freed person, but they're not living the lifestyle of a free person. That's how I want us to think about this idea this morning of redemption. On the one hand, Jesus has secured our position of redemption He also wants us to live, though, as redeemed people. So we need to ask ourselves this question. I may be redeemed, I've had my sins forgiven, but am I living the lifestyle of a redeemed person, a free person? We have the position of redemption through our faith in Jesus that secures eternal redemption, but again, are we living the lifestyle of redemption? So in these two verses, Hebrews shows us Jesus' death not only secured salvation, his death and resurrection also cleanses our conscience. He makes us alive spiritually so we can live a life that is pleasing to God. We can live a life no longer like slaves but as free people to God. We can serve the living God with a pure heart because of Jesus's sacrifice for us. So if you would, I want to read these two verses. Would you join me in standing out of respect for God's word? I just want to read 13 and 14, and we'll pray and get started. He says in Hebrews, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Pray with me for a moment, please. Almighty God, thank you for the songs we've heard to focus our heart and our thoughts on all the wonderful things you've done, how we can sing of your great love for us and your redemption that you've secured for us. Now, God, I ask that you would focus our thoughts on this section of Hebrews. Would you help me, Lord, to say the right things that will help people to see truth here about living a lifestyle of redemption? Thank you, Jesus, for securing that redemption and making us alive so we can live as free people. In your son's name, I pray. Amen. Thank you. You May be seated. So again, here's I want to give you kind of the main idea, and we'll talk about it as we go. This is what I'm trying to get across today from these two verses. It's that Jesus' sacrifice, on the one hand, it secures the position of redemption. That was last week, but today I want you to think about something else. It enables us to serve the living God with our daily lives. He provides us a lifestyle of redemption. How does Jesus do this, though? Well, let's start by looking at verse 13. And the writer of Hebrews is going to do what he's done every week. He's going to talk about something from the Old Testament and compare it to Christ. So here we go again. But it starts in the Old Testament in verse 13. He says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons or the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So what he's doing here is he says, let's look at the blood. He's going to compare the blood of the animals of the Old Testament to the blood of Christ and what he did in the New Testament. So he starts though with the blood of the animals. Well, what they did is it purified the body. So the blood of animals purifies the body. Let's start there. In verse 13, he starts with, for if, my translation says. Again, he's cluing us in. I'm about to make a comparison of something back then to something Jesus has done now. And what he starts with here is to compare the blood of goats, bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled people with the ashes of a heifer, it says. I actually prefer, I'm reading this out of the English Standard Version, I actually prefer other translations here. The New American or a King James or a New King James, they change the word order a little bit. They put the phrase ashes of a heifer before the word sprinkling. It's not a big deal either way, but I just want to read it the way they have it. It makes a little more sense. It would say this, If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled. So what he's doing is talking about those Old Testament sacrifices, that whole system that we've talked about many times before. He's setting up to compare with what Jesus did, his blood. The Old Testament sacrifices had a place. They were important. But again, I stress their place was never, never to save someone from their sins. They they weren't designed to do that. Those Old Testament sacrifices could never provide eternal redemption. That was not the point. Now notice he calls the people here the defiled persons. What he means here is sinners. These were sinners, and defiled can mean several things. It can mean morally defiled. They committed sinful deeds, and it made them morally unclean, spiritually unclean. It also, though, could mean physically unclean. God had rules for if you come into contact with a dead carcass on the side of the road, an animal or things of that nature, it made you physically unclean, and they had to go through a purification ritual process. And he's saying here that whole system, all it could do, the blood of those animals, it could only purify the body. It could only work physically. It could only impact people outwardly and only temporarily so. Because look here, he says, it could sanctify for the purification of the flesh. That's the body. Those Old Testament sacrifices were only effective for that stuff. The body, the flesh. Sanctify means to make holy. To set apart is another meaning of the word. It means to be set apart in service for God. So it has a range of meanings. But here he's saying, The Old Testament sacrifices, the blood of all those animals that were sacrificed, what they could only do was set people apart, sort of ceremonially speaking. They could cleanse them temporarily, but only in their body. could only purify the flesh. The word purification, you could think of the word cleanse. It refers to not taking a bath and being clean physically. It meant more of a, a religious cleansing, a spiritual cleansing through some ceremony or process that you would do that's all the Old Testament sacrificial animals blood could do for people it was physically based it was temporary so a limited effect those sacrifices were offered by these people and it purified them in the flesh in their bodies It didn't save the soul for all eternity that's why they had to continuously offer sacrifices over and over and over because those sacrifices were not eternal in their impact It didn't save the soul, it just purified the body. They were meant to be a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice to come, the Messiah, and what he would do. Now I want you to see this about the Old Testament sacrifices. Those sacrifices were meant to be an act of worship, not an act of salvation. That's the point he wants us to see, I believe. They were meant for worship, not for salvation. They were how God said he he was to be approached by his people through offering the blood of these animal sacrifices to purify their bodies temporarily so they could approach the living God. They offered a way to be clean in the body. If someone, like I said, came into contact with a dead dead animal or things and it made them unclean, they had to go through these things. Now that's his starting point, the blood of those animal sacrifices. But now then he jumps and says, okay, look at the blood of Jesus Christ though. So the blood of Jesus purifies the conscience. That's his comparison. Verse 13, the blood of the animals purifies the body. But verse 14, the blood of Jesus goes deeper than the body. It can purify the conscience, the soul, we could say as well. Look at verse 14 now. He says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That phrase, how much more Then Again, he's saying, let me make this comparison If the blood of those animal sacrifices, it had an effect to one degree, if it had an effect, then you had better believe the blood of the perfect Son of God has an even greater effect, is the point he's trying to make here. Now, let's ask this question, though. Why does Jesus' blood have such an effect? What makes his blood so much more potent and powerful than those animal sacrifices? The first point he makes is because of Jesus' position. His position in verse 14 is simply, he throws out a word here, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifers sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, the word Christ is Messiah, or you could say the Son of God. Well, what was Jesus' position? He was the Son of God. He was not an animal. And I know you're thinking, well, of course he was an animal. But get the comparison he's making here. What makes Jesus' blood eternally impactful versus those animals. Why weren't they good enough? Because the animals weren't the Son of God. Jesus is. He calls himself Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He took on human flesh. That fact alone should answer this question, why is his blood more powerful? Because it's the blood of the very Son of God. That has infinite more impact than some animal sacrifice ever could have. Now, the second reason his blood has more impact is because of his power. The next part of the phrase here, it's not just because of his position as the Son of God, it's the power. In this phrase in verse 14, he says Jesus, or that's the who, through the eternal Spirit. That's the key. Jesus carried out his ministry as the man here on earth through a certain power. He had power because he was the Son of God, but remember, while he was on this planet as the God-man Jesus, he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If you remember at his baptism recorded in the Gospels, it says the Holy Spirit came down upon him like a dove from the sky. That was signifying that, yes, he's the Son of God and has his own power as the Son of God. But while on this earth, he conducted himself through the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, one time when the Pharisees accused Jesus, he was casting out demons and doing these miracles. You may remember they accused Jesus of getting that power from Satan himself. And Jesus warned them. He said, listen, you're not attacking me. You're attacking the very Holy Spirit of God because that's who I do this power through is the Holy Spirit of God. So that's what he means by this phrase, through the eternal spirit. Whatever Jesus did on earth as the God-man, he did it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now this is the point. No animal sacrifice from the Old Testament could ever say, I offer myself up and carry out this work through the Holy Spirit. That's not possible. Animals are not spiritual creatures. People are. Jesus was as well a spiritual person while he was the God-man here on this earth. He conducted himself in the power of the Holy Spirit. The final way that Jesus' blood has more impact is because of his purity. So his position, he's the son of God, the animals weren't, His power, he did everything through the Holy Spirit. The animals couldn't do that. And his purity. It says at the part of verse 14, there's this phrase, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. The key is he offered himself without blemish. That means morally speaking, sinfully speaking, Jesus was completely pure. He was completely holy. A man cannot die for another man and pay for their sins. However, the God-man, Jesus, he could. Well, how could he? Because he, as God, but also being a man, offered himself up for the sins of other men and women, but he was completely pure and holy. Because of his purity, he says Jesus offered himself up as a sacrifice without blemish. He was eligible, so to speak, to pay for other people's sins because... He was not a sinner himself. I can't die for your sins. It will do nothing for you. and You can't die for mine. We're both sinners. We're in the same situation together. Jesus was not, so he could. Humans are moral creatures. Animals are not. Animals simply do what they do out of instinct. Sure, they can be trained, but they don't have a moral conscience, so to speak. Animals don't make moral choices of right and wrong like people do. We make moral choices. We know good from bad. We can sin or we can choose not to sin. Jesus, as the Son of God who took on flesh and became a real human, was also a moral person. He had to make moral choices. He was tempted, you may recall, but he always chose the right things. He lived pleasing to God in every way. He was completely morally pure and without sin. He did what Adam and Eve were supposed to do, but failed to do. So with that in mind, he says, okay, the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament... They also had to be without blemish. That meant physically, though. God said, you can't bring me an animal and offer it as a sacrifice in an act of worship if it's blind, it's got bruises, broken bones, it's got some defect. God was basically saying, don't bring me the animals that you don't think you can sell for high dollar. Don't bring me those. Bring me your best. Bring me your most valuable animals because I deserve the best, and that's an act of true worship. Well, Jesus, morally speaking then, offered himself up too, without blemish, without spot. This is what makes Jesus' sacrifice, his blood, much more eternally significant than those animal sacrifices from the old. Jesus' position, son of God, animals weren't. His power from the Holy Spirit, animals didn't have that. And his purity makes his blood have eternal significance. Sure, an animal could be physically pure, meaning no defect or problems, but it could never be morally pure. It's not a moral creature. Jesus was, though. Well, what does Jesus' blood do? What does it actually do, though? Well, what Jesus' blood does, he says to us this morning from verse 14, it provides a lifestyle of redemption. And that's the point I want to try to get across this morning. It secures redemption. That's your eternal forgiveness, your eternal salvation. But while you're here on this earth, it provides A lifestyle for you to follow, to live as a redeemed person. It goes beyond those animal sacrifices, Jesus's blood does, and his sacrifice provides a way for us to live as a freed person to God. He provides a way for us to live on this earth pleasing to God before we get to heaven and are in the presence of God. He frees us from the slavery of sin so that we can also live the lifestyle of a freed person. Jesus provides us the ability to overcome sin in our lives and live a life as a spiritually free person. How does he do that though? Well, his blood purifies our conscience. In verse 14, that's the last phrase there. He says, Jesus's blood offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience. That's how he does it. His blood doesn't purify the body it goes deeper than the body. If you look back up for a second, I think he's making a sort of an ironic parallel. It's in verse 9 and 10, I believe. In verse 9, he says, according to this arrangement, the Old Testament, meaning those gifts and sacrifices offered, he says the animal sacrifices could never perfect the conscience. It could never do that. But here in verse 13 and 14 now, he says, but Jesus' blood can... Purify and make perfect the conscience. He goes deeper than what those animal sacrifices could do for a person. The word purify, again, little wordplay going on. Back in verse 13, he says the animal sacrifices, what did they purify? The body or the flesh, but Jesus' purifies, the conscience, the soul. The word purify here is like the word in verse 13 earlier that I said. You could also substitute the word cleanse to make clean, is what he's saying. Again, not taking a bath and just being physically clean. He means spiritually and morally to make something that was sort of dirty spiritually and now it's cleaned up spiritually. The word also means to sift out the bad and leave the good. Jesus cleans up the soul. He cleans the conscience. He purifies it. He makes it new again. Jesus' sacrifice, His blood, doesn't just forgive us from our sins. That's the position of redemption. He cleanses our conscience so we can live a lifestyle of redemption. The word conscience is interesting, too. It just simply means your moral conscience, your ability to discern right from wrong, good from evil. Some have called this the religious organ. Humans are said to have the five senses, taste, touch, smell, sight, and hearing. Well, we should add another, the moral sense. That is the more important sense. What good would it be if you had perfect taste, touch, smell, sight, and hearing, and yet you have the morality of an Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin who are responsible for senseless murders of millions of people. The moral sense is what's important, and that's what he's getting at here by this idea of conscience. Jesus doesn't give you a clean physical body, so to speak. I mean, think about this. When you come to the Lord and you're saved and you're forgiven, there's no guarantee. It's just the facts of the matter. The point of Jesus' sacrifice is not to clean us physically and make us have perfect bodies. That's not the point. That's for heaven. You get a new resurrected body. Well, what's the point for down here? Jesus cleanses us spiritually. He makes the conscience and the spirit pure. Physical healing comes later. He cleanses our conscience, purifies the moral sense. He purifies your ability to overcome evil and do good. He cleanses your moral conscience so you can judge in a situation what the right thing to do that pleases God. Now, the big one to mention, and I really want you to get this this morning, How else does Jesus cleanse the conscience? The big one is, I believe, Jesus cleanses your conscience from any guilt you may carry with you from your past. Past sins that you have, that you still carry today, that hold you back, that hang over your head, He can cleanse the conscience from those things too. You only need ask. God says that through Jesus, He wipes away all sins, and then He says He remembers them no more. He casts them away. So you and I don't have to live life constantly thinking about things we did last year, five years, ten years ago. God says, if you've asked for forgiveness and you've confessed and you're one of my children, they're gone. Jesus can cleanse the conscience. He forgives us as Christians when we still sin. As long as we repent and we confess those sins, he can cleanse the conscience, make us pure again. So we can move on in our fellowship with God and serve the Lord without guilt hanging over us. Well, how can we live this lifestyle of redemption then? Well, he purifies the conscience from something so we can go for something else. And here's what he does. He says, how do we live the lifestyle of redemption? Jesus, he purifies us from dead works. So his blood purified from dead works. In verse 14, he says, Jesus cleanses us from dead works to serve the living God. Again, notice the wordplay. He calls the works dead, but he calls God living. He's making this comparison to be a little ironic. Dead is necros, you may have heard that word. It's the word that can mean literal death, like something no longer has physical life in it. But it can also have other words. It can mean that something is useless or worthless. It brings you no benefit, no gain. Spiritually, the word meant it brought you no spiritual benefit. So in the Old Testament system, those animal sacrifices only purified the body temporarily. Then people had to be taught the law of God and how to live pleasing to God. But they had the Holy Spirit not inside them. The Holy Spirit was outside. It's different in the new. The Holy Spirit indwells people and lives inside their hearts. The people of the Old Testament had to battle living by faith and trusting God to save them or... Do they do works and believe that those works can save them? Now, by works, he means when you carry out an action, you do something, but you do it with the mindset that it's, it's gaining you sort of this level of salvation. It's gaining you favor with God. It's the idea of, well, if I do more, then God's more happy with me. If I do more, then I'm saved. That's the idea of working for your salvation. The Old Testament, it had a lot of rules, a lot of laws, but those laws were never meant to be a checklist for salvation. You know, some people in the Old Testament might have thought, well, if I keep the Ten Commandments, I'll write them out, and the laws in Leviticus, I keep checking them off. I haven't broke that one, I haven't broke that one, I have done this, so God must really like me. Maybe now I'm going to heaven, because I've kept enough and done enough. But that that's not the point. However, many Jews, though, they did turn the Old Testament stuff, into that kind of a system. By the time Jesus shows up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find a group of people called the Pharisees. They truly thought that the path to salvation was that you keep as much of that law as you could, like a checklist. The more boxes you can check off, the more holy you are, the better off you are with God, the more likely God is to let you into heaven. It was all about the works, what you could do. It was not about faith. It was about what you did Not about the condition of your heart. An example of how bad this got is Jews over time, by the time Jesus showed up on the scene, if you've ever read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you may have seen this phrase called a Sabbath day's journey. You may have wondered, what is a Sabbath day's journey? Here's where that came from. In the Ten Commandments, God had one of the Ten Commandments was keep the Sabbath holy, don't work on the Sabbath. Honor it. Do rest and don't work and honor the Lord and keep that day as holy. Well, the Jews came along and said, man, we really don't want to break God's commands. So let's make up extra rules on top of the rules that God set up to make sure we don't break the real rules. So they made up extra rules and said, if you keep our extra rules, then you're for sure never to break God's rules. Because they were all about the rules. They thought that's what got them their salvation. A Sabbath day's journey, what that was is a rule that the Jews made, and it was this. On the Sabbath day, a Jew could not walk any farther than 2,000 cubits from the limits of the city. Now, I tried to do cubits here. There's, there's a little bit of an approximation on what a cubit really was. But it's anywhere from 972 yards to 1,138 yards. That would be 2,000 cubits. So think about that. They had a rule that on the Sabbath day, you could not walk, count your steps. You could not take more than 972 yards worth of steps and travel. If you did, the Sabbath day rule was called, okay, well, if you go over that, you're working because you're walking too much and you're breaking that 10 commandment law of don't, break the Sabbath, keep it holy, don't do any work. The point is here, that's an example of how extreme the Jews got with the rules. They created this Sabbath day journey to make a rule for everyone, just to make sure they don't break the real Ten Commandment rule. But the thing is, God never made a Sabbath day journey rule. God didn't command that. That's something they made up. They made it up because they were so concerned to not break the rules. Now, it's noble on the one hand to think, well, maybe it's because they cared so much about God, they didn't want to break his commands. But that's actually not the reason. They made up these rules, not because they cared so much about God. They made up these rules because they cared so much about themselves and thought that that was the way they got to heaven, was not breaking the rules. That's what Hebrews means by dead works. So get verse 14 again. He purifies our conscience from dead works. It's when a person thinks they can earn their way to heaven by their own effort. It's when a person thinks they become saved or right with God by being what you've probably heard people say, a good person. These works, we could also call them, their self-effort. It's when a person tries to use their own means, their own effort to earn God's favor, to earn forgiveness, to earn salvation. Hebrews calls them dead works because they do nothing For the person in terms of saving their soul for eternity. Only Jesus can do that. Only faith in Jesus saves the person. So in that sense, he says working for salvation, working for God's favor, that's a dead process. It doesn't bring you anything. It won't get you to heaven. This idea of self-effort is very much alive in our society today. How many people have you heard say something like, I know I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. But what does it mean to be a good person, though? How do you know you've done enough good to be forgiven for all your bad? How how could you ever know? That's not how it works. How good does a person need to be in order to get to heaven? Is there some level of goodness somewhere out there that we can look at? And it measures you, and if you go over a certain mark, then you're good. No, that doesn't exist. Is there some list out there that we can look to and follow that says if you do enough on this list, then you're good enough and you can go to heaven and be right with God. Again, that's not how it works. Hebrews says those things are dead. They don't save you. Paul says in Romans 3 that there is none who are good. No one is good. Meaning in and of ourselves, we cannot earn goodness with God. We cannot attain that on our own. This is what sets Christianity apart from just about any other religion that at least I'm aware of. Most other religions, if not all, teach some version of self-effort for your forgiveness and salvation. Remember, even the Jews by Jesus' day had turned it into that as well. It's sort of human nature to think that we can do it ourselves. We can figure it out on our own. If we just try hard enough, we'll get there. But again, Christianity says, no, that's not how it works. You can't ever do that. You can't earn God's favor with your own merit and your own effort. We're saved from dead works, though. We do not earn our salvation. We don't work for it. We know Jesus has done the work for us. That's the key. Jesus did the work, not us. He secured our redemption. Our job is to do good works. We are to do good works, yes, but for the glory of God because we love him, not because we think we earn something from it, like going to heaven. I read a story that was told about a a tent revival evangelist years ago. Think Billy Graham era type stuff. You know, they set up the big tent outside and people just come into the tent and the evangelist preaches all these messages day after day, calling people to salvation. The story goes that he held several meetings of revival and when it was over, he was packing up the tent, pulling up the stakes. A young man come up to him and asked, what do I do to be saved? The evangelist answered, I'm sorry, but it's too late. And the man responded, oh, oh no, you mean because... The revival meetings are over, like it's it's too late. The evangelist said, no, I mean it's too late because it's already been done. Everything that could be done for your salvation has already been done. So the evangelist then explained to the young man how Jesus, he already did the work for this young man's salvation. And explained it's just about your faith in what Jesus has done for you, not what you can do for God. So the next thing he says, Jesus purifies, again, he purifies us from dead works. But then what does he purify us to go do? He says he purified us to serve the living God. So we are purified by Christ in our conscience. We're purified from dead works, but in turn, we're made spiritually alive to serve the living God. That's the very last phrase in verse 14 here. He says from dead works to serve the living God. He draws the line here and says, one should focus on serving the living God, not dead works. That's the irony here again. God is alive and he grants people eternal redemption, a living salvation. However, many people wrongly follow after their self-effort, their works, thinking it will grant them some sort of eternal life, but those works are dead. They offer nothing to the person in terms of forgiving them of their sins. Rather, he says one should follow after God who is living and he can grant eternal life. This is his point he wants us to get, I believe, this morning. Jesus does not only offer eternal redemption, but his sacrifice also cleanses our conscience. Our souls are made alive and we can serve God with a lifestyle of redemption. Let me share with you a few passages that I think explain this concept a little more clearly. They're all going to come from Paul. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that we, if if you're in Christ, then you and I, we used to be dead spiritually, but through Christ we have been made alive. In Ephesians 2 verse 1, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So that's who you used to be following the schemes of Satan and not even knowing it, living according to your sins. But then in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Again, that idea of slavery, spiritual slavery to sin. But verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses, made us alive. That's the key. We were dead, but through Christ Paul says, you've been made alive. Now you say, well, I've been physically living. I wasn't dead. He doesn't mean physical dead. Spiritually, we were dead. We were not alive and in tune and aware to live for God in a way that pleases him from the heart because we were dead inside. But through Christ, we're then made alive. And now he says, we've been raised up with him and we can now live for God through Jesus Christ. He says in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's where works come in. We don't do stuff to be saved. We do the stuff because we already are saved. We do the stuff because of a heart of love for the God, and we want to serve him, not because we think we earn something because of our effort. So a lifestyle of redemption means overcoming sins in your life not living like a slave to sin, but like a free person who's left those sins behind. Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So again, that's what we're to do. That's how you lived a redeemed lifestyle. You renounce ungodliness now. You don't follow the worldly passions. What do you do instead? He says to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 14 is key. He gave himself for us to redeem us, there's the word again, from all lawlessness. But look what else he did. To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous or passionate for good works. Jesus saved you on the one hand to forgive you, yes, but Paul says at the end of verse 14, because he wanted a people, a church, that he could say these people are passionate for serving the living God for good works. So we put away worldly passions, ungodly living, and live a self-controlled life for good works to the Lord. It's a long passage. I'll try to be quick, but I want to show you Romans chapter 6. Paul says it probably most clearly here. Romans 6, Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So think about that. If you believe on the one hand, you're saved by grace, just by your faith in Christ, and you're forgiven for all eternity. The rhetorical question could be someone could think, well, does that mean it doesn't matter how I live my life? Can I sin as much as I want, knowing God always forgives me? That's the question Paul addresses here. He says, can I continue to sin, even though God has all this grace he keeps giving me? Look at verse 2. He says, by no means can a real child of God live like that. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? For we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. Now look at that. Paul says if you're a Christian, you something's happened about you spiritually. You have died. The old you is dead. And just like Jesus was raised again on the third day, you've been raised again to live a new life. A life free from sin. We have been united with Him in a death like His. We shall certainly be united in a resurrection like His. Verse 6, look at this. Our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So Paul is being very strong wording here to say, you and I should consider our old self before Christ as nailed on that cross beside Jesus. It's dead. And we're a new person now. We've been made alive, he says at the end of verse 6, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. That's a picture of what we're supposed to be like. We are to consider ourselves as having died once to our old sinful ways, our own sinful life, but now the life we live is to be lived for God. Verse 11, he says this, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So again, Paul says, if you have faith in Jesus, If he's forgiven you of your sins, then in a spiritual sense, you died along with Christ on that cross. When Jesus rose again, you also rose again, spiritually speaking, and now you should be a new creature, a new person. Our old selves were slaves to sin, so we should consider us to be no longer that person. We should see ourselves as new creatures, alive to God through Jesus. So again, we cannot let sin become our masters anymore. By the power of Jesus, we can overcome sin. Jesus doesn't just free us from the slavery of sin one time and forgive you for all eternity. That's true. That's your position. But he also frees us to live a lifestyle as freed people every day. How can we live this lifestyle of redemption? Only by the power of Jesus, not self-effort. Yes, you do stuff, but it's only through the power of Christ working in you. The lifestyle of redemption is having a cleansed conscience by Jesus, That is free from dead works, meaning free from doing your own self-effort, but you're made alive to serve the living God. But how do we live it, though? Paul's answer was simply this. Consider yourself dead to your old life of sin. Consider yourself alive to God through the power of Jesus. And I ask each of you, myself as well, but each of us this morning. Number one, do you know Jesus? Do you know without any doubt you're a redeemed person? Can you say my position is I'm a child of God? My position is I know I'm redeemed for all eternity. I will be in heaven with God. If yes, then the second question would be, well, are you living though the lifestyle of a redeemed person? Are you living the lifestyle of a forgiven person? What areas maybe in your life have you not conquered sin in? What sins maybe are you holding on to? What sins have you let become your master. Those are the sins you need to confess to God and vow to get rid of them. Unconfessed sin, unrepented sin, that will hold us back in our walk with the Lord. You can never be higher than the sins you're holding onto. That will be sort of a barrier, a stop, keeping you from advancing on in your walk and your service to the Lord. So the question would be, have you died to sin in your life? All of it. Are you living truly alive to God through Jesus today? I want to pray for us, and as I do, that's my ask of you this morning when Bruce and them lead us. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? But secondly, if yes, are you living that redeemed lifestyle? Or have you let some sins become your master? Today would be the day to confess those, ask God to forgive you of them, and press on considering yourself having died to those sins. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you died for us, that we can come and worship you, as our God, as our Savior, singing of the great love you showed us, your sacrifice on that cross. But not only that, as we've seen from Hebrews, you didn't just die to save us so that we can wait for however many years we live, living however we want, then to just go to heaven. You died to save us, to cleanse our souls, our conscience, so we could actually serve God with our daily lives. Lord, I'd start with myself and ask for everyone here, would you reveal to us convict us of those sins in our lives we're holding on to, sins that we've let become our master. Would you help us all to see this morning we're to live as free people from sin as your children. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.